I would like to uh, welcome everybody here this morning to your Sunday morning 1020 appointment with the great physician. Your Sunday morning 1020 appointment with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords, with the great King and God and Lord Almighty, with our Heavenly Father, with your Creator, your Redeemer and Friend. Your 1020 Sunday morning appointment with a great physician who wants to help and to heal you and to help you avoid further pain and pitfalls in your earthly spiritual life. He's here this morning to help and we're glad that you're here for your appointment. Please turn to me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Gospel according to Matthew chapter 20 verse 20. Going to have a little 2020 vision this morning. Matthew 2020. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We're able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. They were indignant. They were upset. But Jesus called them to himself. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We know this story very well. We know that Jesus herein is showing how his kingdom, his church, is going to be different from all the world around them. We know that this is an unchangeable truth in the Bible. We understand that we cannot change it no matter how much some might like to. It says what it says, it means what it says, and it says what it means. And although we know this message very well, maybe when I turned there some of you thought, I've got this one pretty much memorized. Well, maybe you do. But memorizing the Bible isn't as valuable as living the Bible. Have you ever stopped to consider how thoroughly this message right here, this message and this eternal truth constantly winds 
and threads and works its way through the entire New Testament record. Have you ever thought about that? How this truth right here is just woven into the pattern of the New Testament. I want you to stop and think. We see it in the very beginning. The very first line of the very first lesson that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is publicly recorded as giving in Matthew's Gospel for public consumption. You know what it is? It's this thought right here. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 3 on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 3. Very first publicly recorded sermon for public consumption. First line, first words out of our Savior's mouth have to do with that very concept. Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you'll recall some years ago when we studied this, we talked about what it meant to be poor in spirit. It meant to be bankrupt in spirit. It meant to understand how sinful and small we are in comparison to God. It's one who is bankrupt of spirit, one who is totally humbled because they understand who they are. And we see this same concept of being a servant, of humbling oneself, of humility throughout much of the remainder of even the Sermon on the Mount. If you look here in your Bibles in Matthew 5, verses 40 through 48, what it's going to tell you there, in just another reflection of this same truth that we saw in Matthew 20, it's going to tell you there that the greatest and the most godly are those who give of themselves to others. Those who give of themselves to others fully, willfully, and without any thought for their own self-interest or glory. If we were to look in Matthew chapter 6, continuing along in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 18, we would see that the greatest, according to God, are the silent and humble the hidden and subtle. The behind the scenes get their hands dirty doers, workers, servants, and sacrificers of themselves on behalf of others with no thought of personal glory or public recognition. That is the truth we see reflected in Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 18. In fact, that word humility, I want us to think about that word humility. That word, or the humbling of oneself, is at the very heart and soul of what it means to become the greatest in the kingdom. Without humility, without truly humbling oneself, they can never become great because must humble themselves and become a servant. That Greek word there for humility means this. Listen to what the word is defined as in the Greek. To assign a lower rank or place to, to a base, to be ranked below others who are honored or rewarded, to humble or abase myself by humble living, to put myself beneath or below or rank myself below others who are honored, others who are rewarded. It also means to lower or depress. That's what the word humility means. Of, it's used that way of one's soul to bring down one's pride. 
It means to have a modest opinion of oneself. It means to behave in an unassuming manner or devoid of all haughtiness. That's what the word humility means. That's what this truth that winds its way through the New Testament is all about when it comes to being great in this kingdom. And yet, humility, true biblical humility, is something that most people and often... Even highly religious people struggle a lot with. They really do. And yet it is the very thing, this struggling with, with humility, this, this, this pride that they're struggling to get against, and, and as they struggle to become humble, for those that don't, it is the very thing that keeps so many from them from ever becoming the greatest in the kingdom, because the greatest is going to be the servant. It is what keeps so many from being amongst the greatest in the kingdom despite how great they might think they are or they aspire to be. Look how this winds its way through Luke's gospel. Turn to me to Luke 14. We see this truth reflected herein once again. This is an unchangeable, ungetaroundable thing. For who the greatest in the kingdom will truly be. There's no other path there. Look what... Luke says about this truth as it winds its way through here, and he records Jesus' words. It says in Luke 14, 1, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him closely. Please do not miss where Jesus is. Jesus is in the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. He's in the home of a powerful, prestigious man with powerful friends. Go with me to verse 7. In verses 2 through 6, Jesus actually heals a man and they're upset with him. But look what it says in verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, remember these are powerful friends of a powerful man. And as they come in and they seat themselves right up front, Jesus in this man's house says this. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus said, don't, don't go in and, and sit down in the best seat. What are you going to do if the host has invited somebody who's more important than you are? Somebody who actually is more important than you think you are. And he comes along and he says, hey, that's not your seat. You know, it's like you go to a venue, to a ball game or an entertainment event, and you know, you bought some of the cheaper seats, and you, you look way down front, and you think, well, you know, those seats down there that sold for ten times what mine sold for, nobody showed up, so maybe I'll get down during intermission and I'll get a good seat. And you move down and you're getting all ready for the second part of the show and somebody taps on your shoulder and says, uh, pardon me, these seats are taken. The folks are here and they're paid for. You go, Ugh. Jesus said, don't do that. He said, but instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a lesson 
that we would repeat as it was spoken in a parable to a similarly similarly religious, I can say that, to a, <coughs> I think, excuse me, to a similarly religious person in Luke 18, 9 through 14. We know that story well. I want to paraphrase it into modern day Surroundings, if I might, you can turn there, Luke 18, 9 through 14, but I want to make it a little more applicable to us. And I would reword it thus. Two men went up to the church building for worship. One a congregational leader and the other a struggling member. The church leader stood as the first prayer was being offered and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like some of these other members. Folks who don't sing as well as I do, can't lead prayers as well as I do, or even give as much as me, like that one sad brother back in the pew behind me. I'm here at least once most Sundays and pretty much every Wednesday and I put a bigger check in the plate than the guy behind me has ever done. But the other brother, standing silently behind him and listening intently to the prayer being led from the front, clenched his glistening eyelids even tighter together as he silently prayed to God, Lord, please be merciful to me. I am so weak and so unworthy. I do not even deserve to be here in your house today, let alone in your very presence. God have mercy on me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other when the worship service was over. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That very lesson... Jesus had to repeat several times to the people of his day, even to the religious elite, and even then, most of them still refused to hear it. Religious people, highly, devoutly, zealously religious people, and they still didn't hear Jesus. They didn't hear it, or if they did hear it, they just refused to humble themselves and submit to and live it. We see the same phraseology in Matthew 23 in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus is talking to the religious elite of his day and he says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. It's still right there. It's, it's threaded. Why do you think God wound that through so much of the New Testament? Because he's trying to get across to us what true greatness, it's not about, you know, his kingdom is not of the world, it's in the world, but it's not of the world. When Jesus told Pilate that in John 18, he said, my kingdom's not like anything out there in the world. It's not the same, it doesn't work that way. And so the reason God is winding this through here is because we spend so many hours a day in the world that he wants for us to understand the church doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like the corporations. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. It's not like that. The greatest in the kingdom will be him who humbles himself, becomes your slave. 
As I said, that was all throughout Jesus' ministry as well as the apostles' ministry. It's not as if they could have legitimately missed what greatness was all about. Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke 20. Since we're in Luke, let's keep going. Luke 20. Take a look in Luke 20. Look at verse 45. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive the greater condemnation. These highly religious people were condemned by Jesus. Why? Here's why. Because true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not based upon public recognition, verse 46, but on private mercy given, verse 47. That's why. Look at the next few verses. Chapter 21, verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not those who put in $20 when they have millions, but those who put in their last two bucks to the work of the Lord. See how this message winds its way through the text? The greatest in the kingdom are those who serve. Those who serve and work and sacrifice and get their hands dirty doing the work that nobody else is willing to do. Because others might think that they're either too good or somehow above doing it. The greatest in the kingdom are those who serve by getting down on their hands and knees and giving themselves up. Isn't that what Jesus did in John 13? Isn't that what Jesus did? Did Jesus do the work nobody else was willing to do? They walked into that room and not one of those disciples was going to lower himself to wash and feet. Not one of them. Jesus gives them plenty of opportunity, and then some point during the end, he gets up and he's given them all the opportunity. Anybody could, Peter could have done it. Peter wasn't getting down on his hands and knees. Are you kidding me? So Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, gets a basin of water. God gets on his knees, and he does the dirty work that nobody else is willing to do. Jesus said, that's greatness in my kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom are those who will serve and care for others, some of whom they know will soon betray and deny and desert them when they need them the most. Isn't that what Jesus did? Did Jesus wash Judas' feet? Yes, he did. Did Jesus know Judas was going to betray him? Did he? Did Jesus wash Peter's feet? Peter said, wash my whole body. John 13. Did he know Peter was going to deny him? That's greatness. And sometimes it means serving those who are ungrateful, uncaring, and will reject and desert you. 
This is what the great king himself showed his own disciples true greatness was the night before he was crucified in John chapter 13. But that was just the beginning. Because then, you know what happened next? He was crucified. Turn to me in your Bibles to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. Again, very familiar text, but we're going to look at this maybe in a little bit different light than we've considered it before as we discuss it. Philippians 2 verse 3. Paul writing to the church of Christ, first century congregation of the Lord's church in Philippi, writes as follows, beginning at verse 3. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't think you're too good to do whatever it is that the work, the work is that needs to be done. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. What's one definition of humility? Putting yourself under somebody else. Lowering or depressing yourself above those who get more credit and glory. Same idea. Let each of you, verse 5, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Then he explains how. He says, let this mind think like this, he says. In order to do something, you've got to think through it first to do it the right way. And he says, so, okay, this is what you do, but here's how you do it. Get this into your head. Let this be in your mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he was equal with God, one version says. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant. He didn't consider, it says, equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, one version says, and he emptied himself of equality with God in some ways, and he came and did the dirty work. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Listen, I want you to get this. If you don't get anything else from this today, get this. Was Jesus with God in the beginning? Yes, he was. John 1, 1 through 3, Genesis 1. He was great because he was God. God is great. Jesus was great because he is God. But, here's the thing. What, even though he was God to begin with, Jesus was, what got him highly exalted was not the fact that he was God. Don't miss this. What got him highly exalted later on that we see in this chapter is not just because he was equal with God. That's not why God exalted him. What made him even greater? What made him even greater? If there is such a thing and got him exalted was not just that he was God before, but look at the four things he did that made him great and exalted. Number one, he made himself of no reputation. Number two, he made himself a bond servant. Number three, he humbled himself. And number four, he became obedient. And that is why, verse 9, God exalted him. Jesus was not great in the same sense in the beginning when he was God and was with God, although that is incredible and awesome and great beyond our knowledge. But the reason he was exalted was because 
he made himself of no reputation, became a servant, and became humbled, humbled himself, and became obedient. Folks, that's what defines greatness. Do you see it? That's what defines... You can be God in the beginning. But that is not as exalting or picking you up as high as being a servant, humbling yourself, being of no reputation, and being obedient. Because... When he did those things, verses 7 and 8, that is the reason, verse 9, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Is it true that when one humbles themselves, God will exalt them? Is it true in the case of Christ? Absolutely. That's why he was exalted. And that's the only way his disciples any of whom would ever be amongst the greatest in this great king's kingdom will ever become so. That is what the great Apostle Paul is such a great example of himself. Think about the Apostle Paul as we think about Jesus' disciples and followers. If we were to read Acts 22 in verse 3, you can turn there if you'd like. If we were to read Acts 22, particularly verse 3, we would see that Saul of Tarsus had the right religious and family pedigree. He had the right religious and family pedigree. Number two, he had the benefit of learning from one of the greatest religious teachers of his day, Gamaliel. One of the greatest, he had that benefit. And Saul of Tarsus had about the best and most in-depth religious training and upbringing a person could ask for. You could not have a greater upbringing and exposure to these incredible teachers than, the, than Saul of Tarsus had. Let me tell you something. Saul of Tarsus even had such a name that he... Check this out. He had such a name, such a reputation that he could actually get letters of recommendation and authority from the Sanhedrin, the very group that was powerful enough to have Jesus crucified by the Romans. Saul of Tarsus was so highly thought of and had so much influence that he could get letters from the Sanhedrin to go to other countries with their full backing and authority. He could get personal recommendation letters to go and to arrest Christians. That takes a little bit. Had the right family pedigree, teachers, bringing up, bringing authority, all of it. And if you look in Philippians chapter 3, and I ask that you please do that. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, you will see the same things I just talked about, again stated and expanded upon. He had all the best training. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. He had the biggest trophies, and he had the purest religious pedigree possible. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Do you know what he said in the next few verses? In the next few verses, he said all that stuff, all that stuff that I just mentioned, was nothing more than garbage. Nothing, it was useless. It was, it was like refuse. It was trash compared to truly knowing Jesus. 
compared to truly knowing Jesus in the sense of becoming a humble and submitted, self-sacrificing and obedient servant in the same way and image as his Savior was. That's what Paul's talking about. He said all that stuff, all that other stuff, all of it, Gamaliel and all of this heritage, all of it, it's pointless compared to being a humble servant like my Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that's what he said? Look in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things for the loss of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was already a Christian. What's this stuff about I may gain Christ? Wasn't he a Christian already when he wrote this? Yes. But what's he talking about? Read on. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Don't you know who Jesus is? Well, yeah, I know who He is. That's not what I'm talking about. I want to know Him. That's what Paul's talking about. That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. What's Paul talking about? I'll tell you what Paul's talking about. Paul says, I want to be like Jesus. I want to know Him in the sense that I want to live like Jesus. I want to know Him in the experience. Yeah, I know who He is. I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. At this point, Paul had. He's writing to church. He knew who Christ was. He'd been, he'd been born again of the water and the Spirit. He'd been baptized, have his sins washed away. Acts 22 and verse 16. It wasn't that he didn't know Christ, but he wanted to know Christ. He said, I want to know Him. I want to experience being just like Him. I want to be conformed to His death. Well, what did we just read in Philippians 2 in the chapter before about His death? He emptied Himself, humbled Himself, became a servant, became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Is that what we just read? That's how Jesus died, right? That's why God exalted Him, right? Paul says in the very next chapter, I want to be like that. Because he says, I'll tell you, if I'm not a humble, obedient servant of no reputation, a bond servant, obedient to God no matter what, humble, do what nobody else will do. If I'm not like that, that's what Jesus was. And if I'm not like that, I got nothing. All that other stuff, pfft, that's garbage compared to knowing and living what Jesus lived. And it was only at that point that the Apostle Paul became the great and powerful servant which God could finally use to the fullest to bring him glory and not until. Brethren, Jesus told us what greatness in the kingdom is all about. If you are here today and you are finally ready to fully forget yourself. Maybe when you are baptized you didn't realize that. Maybe, maybe you didn't. I don't know. Maybe you did. But if you are finally ready to fully forget yourself and humble yourself, put yourself below every other person you know, 
and to finally give yourself fully to the service of those people who may neither love nor serve nor even appreciate or respect you, but in fact might outright even reject you. And all of your sacrificial efforts as you follow in Jesus' footsteps, today is still the time to make up your mind to know Him. The power of His resurrection and, and His fellowship of His sufferings and being conformed to the same person as Jesus was as he made himself of no reputation, made himself a bondservant, and humbled himself and got obedient and did the dirty work that nobody else could or would do. If you need the prayers of the church to have the strength to stay that course, or if you need to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins in order to begin that course, either way, if I may borrow a phrase from one of the electronic game companies, <laughs> greatness awaits <laughs> only in the kingdom of God. Are you ready to truly be somebody great in God's kingdom? Begins by humbling yourself and emptying yourself totally of self so that Jesus can fill you up and He will overflow. If you have that need this morning, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?